the book of Galatians, chapter number 5. The book of Galatians, Brother Dennis Maxey's favorite book of the Bible. We've talked about uh, this book a lot. Had a lot of enjoyable conversations while we were fishing, talking about uh, the Bible. Galatians chapter number 5, our text verse tonight is found in verse number 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For some time I've had in mind preaching a message from the book of Zechariah and uh, and really figured I would preach it before I preached this message. And by way of introducing that message, in fact, I think maybe, I think maybe some time ago I wrote an article about the fact that I've spent uh, most all of my Christian life doing things I didn't know how to do. Um, that that pretty well describes my Christian life. I, I got saved. I surrendered to preach two months later. It dumbs a doorknob. I, I, di- I didn't know anything. I started preaching uh, as soon as I could in rescue missions, pulpit supply, anywhere I could, and uh, took advantage of every opportunity. But, but certainly I had extreme <laughs> limitations because, I mean, it was a learn-as-you-go kind of a deal and very, uh, very difficult. One of the things that helped me, because I realized I needed help, and as, as I think everybody that knows me knows, as I've mentioned so many times, my dependence upon Philippians 4.13. I just lived in that verse especially the first three years of my Christian life. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And I I just constantly was quoting that to myself. One of the the things that helped me, to maybe more than anything else, because I knew I had a relationship with God based on Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I had no doubt about that whatsoever. But one of the things that I had to learn was that it's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that God enables me to do what God calls me to do. I'll never forget my pastor had given me some books by, well, they were actually by some men that I wouldn't necessarily recommend everything about them. Watchman Nee, T. Austin Sparks, I could name a bunch of others, uh, Andrew Murray and different ones. And even though I couldn't or wouldn't agree with everything those men wrote, it really drew my attention to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and I'm really convinced that we don't put nearly enough emphasis upon his ministry today, especially in our Baptist churches we fail. I'll never forget reading one time about uh, D.L. Moody, and uh, he preached quite often about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And one day some woman asked him, why do, why do you preach about the Holy Spirit all the time and being filled with the Spirit? He said, because I leak. <laughs> and, That's a pretty good explanation because of the fact that, you know, that that's something we need on a daily basis. This verse has been called by many preachers one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. 
And for good reason, because it's actually just that. It's absolutely crucial uh, in the life of a Christian, because if we violate this command, we're going to fail at everything else. Sadly, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is misunderstood by many folks, and it's ignored by many others. I'm telling you the truth. You could attend ch some churches for years and never hear anything about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There are some folks that have never heard a sermon on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's something about it that seems mo uh, so mystical and so mysterious. It, 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 it's almost like preachers are afraid to, to, to deal with it. And, and yet it's crucial that we do. Vans Havner made a statement. He said concerning the Holy Spirit that if he ceased his work, many church members would never know the difference. And that's about right. And, and, and let me tell you, everything depends on what God does here through the work of the Holy Spirit. So tonight, I want, I want to talk to you about walking in the Spirit. And there's three things that I want you to notice. First of all, I want you to notice the command here. And, and, and it's just that. It's a command. He says, walk in the Spirit. He's emphatic about that. He's not offering a suggestion. He's not giving us an option. This is a command. Walk in the Spirit. And have you ever thought about all of the different ways that the Bible speaks about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. For example, it speaks about live in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, promise of the Spirit, soweth of the Spirit, prayer and supplication in the Spirit, love in the Spirit, sanctification of the Spirit, justified in the Spirit, eternal Spirit. And here in our text it says walk in the Spirit. And so over and over again, our attention is called to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And here we see that the word walk is used here as a metaphor of our conduct. That is our behavior, our lifestyle, our manner of life. And like someone said, you know, walking consists of two simple steps repeated over and over again. We don't get there in a single leap, you know, just one big step and and life and the journey that we're on is repeating that step when we talk about you know salvation for example that's something that happens once for all as i said this morning once for all jesus died once for all we're saved you don't get saved over and over and over and over again but when we talk about being filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, this is talking about progress. It's talking about traveling. It's talking about moving ahead. And that's the way the Christian life is. It's something that we are to do daily. The question is, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Now, we could answer that in a lot of different ways. One of the most brilliant preachers ever, supposedly, was Jonathan Edwards that led the Great Awakening here in America. Uh, in fact, not just here, but he also uh, uh, shook the world over in England and that, that part of the world. And he said, as he defined walking in the Spirit, he said it means to allow the Spirit to be the governing principle in our lives. Well, that's well said. I mean, that pretty well sums it up. 
A more modern author, Jerry Bridges, said it's to live under the controlling influence of the Spirit and independence upon Him. So it simply means that we depend upon Him consciously for everything. We are to depend upon Him, be directed by Him in our day-by-day, step-by-step manner of life. Now, what we need to realize is that this is the norm for a Christian. In other words, it's natural, it's normal. It's not something reserved just for super saints. It's not the exception. It's not just for a select few of Christians. This is the way that it ought to be for everyone. I wish I had time to talk about it, but uh, you know, most people are content with being what we would call an average Christian. You know, there's a big difference between being average and being normal. You can be in the cancer ward of the hospital where everyone in your particular ward is dying of cancer, and it might be that you are the most healthy among all of those that are in there, so you are above average, but you're not normal, you see. It's not normal to have cancer. And so many times when it comes to our Christian life, we satisfy ourselves by saying, well, I'm as good as everybody else, or I'm better than everybody else. And just by being average, we think we're okay. And uh, the truth is, we are to be normal Christians. In fact, Watchman Lee wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life many years ago. We're to be a normal Christian, and the normal Christian, one that is healthy, one one that we would call in good spiritual shape is somebody that's going to be walking in the Spirit. And if look, if we're not walking in the Spirit, then we're not living in the will of God. I mean, it's that simple and it's that serious. We're either walking in the Spirit or we're not living in the will of God. Oh, I mean, that adds a lot of gravity to this subject tonight. Walking in the Spirit or walking outside of the will of God. So not only is this the norm, this is the most practical thing in all of the world. And I say that because it changes everything about us. In other words, it affects every single area of our life. If I'm walking in the Spirit, it's going to change me. I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to do things differently. Everything's going to be different about me. Whereas if I walk in the flesh, well, everything's going to go in a different direction. So this is the command. Now, you know, I could stand here and preach tonight about the command that we forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. Everybody would say amen. Everybody would say yes, that is so very important that if you're going to be a Christian living in the will of God, you've got to be faithful to God. You need to be in church. I could preach about reading your Bible, studying your Bible, or prayer, or numerous other things that are commanded in the Bible, and no doubt everyone would be in agreement. But when we talk about walking in the Spirit some way or another, we think we get a free pass in that area. Like, that's no big deal for us, you know, to get in the flesh and to refuse to walk in the Spirit. But understand, this is a command, and it's a command... Uh, for a lifestyle that is normal for every child of God. I, I don't I don't know about you, but I don't like the thought of being abnormal in God's sight. You know, that kind of bothers me. 
to think that, you know, that I'm going to walk in the flesh instead of in the Spirit. Because if I'm not walking in the Spirit, if I'm not under the control of the Spirit, and remember when he talks about, when Paul says, be ye filled with the Spirit, he's not talking about you getting more of the Spirit. He's talking about the Spirit having more control of you. That's literally what it's implying there. And so if we're not under the control of the Spirit, then we are under control of other forces other than God, and that's never good. But we look at this and we say, all right, we recognize this is the command. This is what God wants. This is what needs to happen in my life. I am a Christian. I am on my way to heaven. God wants me to walk in the Spirit. Well, now there's a problem. Look at verse 17. Here's the conflict. The conflict concerning the command. Verse 17, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Notice, and he says, And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that ye would. Now, I just got through saying that that the normal thing for a Christian is to be walking in the Spirit. That is, being directed by Him and depending upon Him. That's the normal thing. But it's not automatic. And that's what we've got to get in our head. I, I mentioned T. Austin Sparks a while ago as an author that I'd read as a young Christian. And believe me, he gets in so deep on some things that it makes your head swim. But he was a part of that movement in England called the Keswick Society. And the philosophy of those, uh, those men there, if I could just sum it up, was just let go and let God. Everything depended upon God and all you needed was faith. It didn't require effort on your part. You just quit trying, get out of the way, trust God, God will do it. I mean, that's kind of the way, you know, they summed it up. The problem with that is that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches about us mortifying the flesh. That means putting it to death. In other words, we incur a responsibility whenever we have this command. Now it becomes our responsibility. Just as last week when I was preaching and talking about the little word let. Let this happen. Let that happen. In other words, this is not something that's going to be automatic. It's going to require a willingness and effort on our part. And Paul makes it perfectly clear that we are going to be met by opposing forces. And actually, that opposition comes on three different fronts. First of all, there is the external enemy. I often talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are our three enemies. The world is the external enemy. That's the temptation part. The infernal enemy is the devil. He is the tempter. And then, of course, the internal the internal enemy is the flesh. That's the tempted. So we have the temptation, the tempter, and the tempted. And that which is tempted is the flesh. You know, we love to attribute all of our problems and all of our faults and failures to outside sources. That, you know, that's a convenient, really easy way for us to deal with them. Oh, it's like Flip Wilson, you know, the devil made me do it. 
And a lot of times, you know, you know, we want to blame somebody else for our attitude or our behavior. And in reality, the best way I know how to describe it is this matter of these opposing forces and the battle concerning the flesh, which lusteth against the spirit. In other words, they are opposing forces. And when, when you think about that, you could say it's an inside job. Uh, you, you know, if you watch a lot of documentaries, crime documentaries, like on ID channel and things like that, there'll be some time that, or maybe on an episode of Cops, there'll be a, a robbery of a bank or a store or something and come to find out it was one of the employees, somebody that was on the inside that set the whole deal up. Let me tell you, our biggest enemy is on the inside. It is that internal enemy. Look, look in the book of James for just a second. James chapter 1 and verse number 13. He says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and neither tempteth he any man. Boy, you need to get a hold of that or let that get a hold of you. Now notice this. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That's why I've often said, when it comes to this matter of temptation, which in and of itself is not a sin, when it comes to temptation... You can become like a monk in a monastery and isolate yourself, lock yourself away where nobody can get to you. But still, you're going to be tempted because the greatest enemy is within, it's in you. Notice we're tempted by what? By our own lust. That's where the temptation comes from. And this is where the conflict comes from. There is a war going on within every Christian. And as long as we're in this world, there's going, there's going to be a, a selfish, self-centered propensity that is inclined to perversity. That, that happens to every Christian. And it never stops as long as you are in this world because there are yet the vestiges of your old flesh nature that remain even after you're saved even if you have a new nature there's still those leftovers as it were of the old nature that continue to trouble you and create temptation trying to draw you away so there's a conflict there's a battle that that's a shocking thing to a lot of young christians because they get saved and all of a sudden they think wow this is the end of all of my problems i mean boy i'm not going to have any problems anymore i'm going to be able to uh, you know quit this and quit that and i'm going to be able to clean up my life and everything's going to go easy you know god's going to help me get through all of these things and they don't understand it when all of a sudden the forces of evil come against them and they find themselves suddenly in a pit of depression and wonder Dear God, how did I get here? I thought everything was going to be better. I, you know, I'm a Christian now. I, I, I thought I wouldn't be tempted anymore. Let me tell you, those temptations are going to remain as long as you live. And so there's this battle that is raging. You remember Paul, for example, he dealt with this thoroughly in Romans chapter number 7. He said, the things that I would do, I don't do, and the things I wouldn't do, I find myself doing. I mean, there's this battle raging within him. Somebody says, oh yeah, but that was back before he saved. No, it wasn't because he talks in the same chapter about his love for the law. And there's no unsaved man loves the law of God. 
So he's talking from the standpoint of being a Christian. He is a Christian and expressing the conflict that's going on within him. Let me tell you, if Paul had a conflict like that, don't you be surprised if you do too. It's something we're all going to experience. So as we strive, as it were, to keep the command by walking in the Spirit, we're met with these opposing forces. There is a conflict that's going on every day. And the amazing thing about it is, you know, just about the time you think, well, I've got a handle on this. I've conquered this. You know, I, 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 I used to have a bad temper, but no more. Or I used to be impatient, but, but you know, I've I really conquered that. I'm not impatient anymore. And usually within 24 hours, you're going to be put to the test. And most of the time we have a way of finding a way to fail the test and all of a sudden we're embarrassed because we're not near as spiritual as we'd like to think we are. So expect that conflict. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Now the third thing that we need to consider are the consequences. We have a command that's going to, going to meet with a conflict, but we need to consider the consequences. In doing this, it helps us to realize the importance of this subject. Those that walk in the Spirit will prevail in the conflict. If we don't, we're going to fail. In other words, you could say this is the only way to win. For the Christian, this is the only way to win. It's for me to depend upon the Holy Spirit and to be directed by the Holy Spirit. If that doesn't happen, I'm going to lose in the sense of failing to live the life that God wants me to live. Think about it. Every Christian is called to live a miracle. We are called to live up to a standard that is beyond our human ability. Love your enemies, the Bible says. Another command. Forgive those, you know, that despitefully use you and on and on. Do good, to, you know, to those that would mistreat you. So here we've got these commands about how we relate to one another that are absolutely impossible because there are some people that will so hurt you, so offend you, and, and you look at the Bible and it says, I want you to forgive them, I want you to love them, I want you to do good to them, and there's nothing within you that wants to do that. You feel perfectly justified in feeling the way you do because of what they did to you. What they did was horribly wrong, and yet you're staring that command in the face. God says, this is what I want you to do. We're commanded to do things that in and of ourselves are absolutely impossible. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, without me, ye can do nothing. Now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, without you, I can't do anything. He didn't say that. You know, sometimes we get the idea, well, boy, without me, you know, I remember years ago whenever we moved from Missouri to Tennessee and left the church there that, uh, that we had started, and uh, I thought to myself, oh, wow. They're, 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 they're going to go under, what are they going to do without me here? Well, they probably did better. And by the way, there's still a church there today after all of these years. Thank God for that. But some way or another, we get the idea. And sometimes preachers are guilty of leaving that impression. 
you know, that, that God's work depends upon you. If you don't do this, this church is going under. If you don't do that, you know, God's work is going to uh, falter. And so it's important for you to do what you can. Do what God would have you to do. Because everything depends upon it. Well, let me tell you, you're not that important. And I'm not that important. None of us are. God got along just fine before we came along, and He'll still be in business when we're dead and gone. He's not going to go out of business just because we're not around. So He says, without me, ye can do nothing. And so in the same chapter, He speaks about the factor that's involved in being a fruitful Christian. He says, abide in me. Abide in me. In me, that's sort of like saying, I want you to take up residence in me. I want you to be in fellowship with me. So walking in the Spirit or abiding in Christ changes everything, but we can sum it all up in two areas. And this is what I want you to see. We're talking about the consequences of walking in the Spirit. And it boils down to this. There are two things. Number one, when we walk in the Spirit... We escape the works of the flesh. Look, look in chapter 5, verse number 19 now. He says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest. That is, they're revealed, they're made known, which are these. Here goes the list. Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, uh, revelings and the such like of the which I tell you before as I've also told you in time past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now I want you to notice this last part of verse 21 because some of you might be confused about it. They which do such things shall not, walk, uh, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now here's the point. The point is that the true Christian is not going to habitually live under the power of any of these sins that he mentions here. Turn over to 1 John chapter number 3, and it's even more clear there. 1 John chapter number 3 and verse number 6. He says, Whoso abideth in him sinneth not. Whoso sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, the first thing that whenever a person reads that for the first time, it's like, no way, that can't be. I mean, how is it possible that those that know God, those, you know, that are saved, they sinneth not. They, they, they don't sin. That's what the Bible says, right? 
But the thing that you've got to understand, beginning there in verse number 6 and all down through verse number 10, where he uses words like abideth, and then notice the word committeth there in verse number 6, and commit in verse number 9. All of those are in the continuous sense. Now, I, I'm certainly not an expert when it comes to grammar or, or languages or anything, but I know enough to know through study that it's speaking about that which we do continually, habitually. It becomes a lifestyle. In other words, that is the way that we live. And the Christian doesn't live that way. Notice, he said in this, the children of God are manifested and, and the children of the devil. In other words, he's simply saying, if you're doing this, you're not saved. Period. If that's your lifestyle. Several years ago, I had a deacon argue with me. I'm, I'm telling you what, he just wouldn't give up and wouldn't get off of it. That his brother was saved and everybody in that town knew the man that he was, you know, every town, especially a small town like we lived in, has what is known as the town drunk. Well, he was the town drunk. Everybody knew, knew it. You mentioned his name. He was the drunk. And yet, this deacon brother, who was a good man, by the way, he argued with me. I know that he's saved. He's just out of the will of God. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He was probably close to 60 years old at that time, and he made a profession of a faith when he was a kid. And all of these years, he's been living the life of a drunk. And I was trying to get across to this guy. A person that's truly saved is not going to live that kind of a lifestyle for that length of time. It's impossible. It just can't happen. And that's the point here. So many times, we so badly want to believe that people are saved, we just give them a pass. Oh, well, I know, you know, I, I, I know, I know they're living in sin, but they've got a good heart. No, they don't. They've got a dirty, rotten, filthy heart that needs to be cleansed. That's the problem. And we don't do them any favor. I, look, I'm not saying that we ought to read them the right act every time that we see them or mistreat them. That's not what I'm saying. But we certainly should never leave the impression that, that it's okay to live that way. And, and then turn around and to believe that you're a Christian. Now, on the other hand, none of us, those of us who profess Christ is our Savior, should believe for one second that we cannot at some time or another, act out of character and commit any one of these sins that are mentioned here. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. I'm talking about doing things that we normally wouldn't do. You get the pressure on you, and all of a sudden you'll find yourself doing something that ordinarily you, you, you'd never do. I mean, that would be off limits. I wouldn't do that. But now you're caught on the horns of a dilemma and your flesh is weak. And if you're not careful, if you're not careful, you will. Look, and I'm telling you folks, all it takes, all it takes is any one of those sins to ruin your life forever. That, that's all it takes. 
You'll be paying for it the rest of your life in some way. And not only you be paying for it, there are going to be members of your family. It might be your children and others that will be suffering as a result of the decision that you made. And you made that foolish decision simply because you lost your temper or whatever it was, acted out of character and did something you shouldn't have done. Now, our only safeguard against these sins. We're talking about Christians now. Our only safeguard is to walk in the Spirit. Because when we fail to be walking in the Spirit, what we do is to open the door to any of these sins. It's like giving them an invitation into our life. Boy, the results can be so very painful and tragic. Thank God there is a way to escape the works of the flesh. Now, there's a second benefit from walking in the Spirit. Notice beginning in verse 22, the second thing is that we experience the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, he says, but the fruit, as you know, there's a big difference between work and fruit. Here he's talking about what the Holy Spirit produces. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. In the Bible, the word fruit is used in several different ways. For example, that sometimes we might speak about fruit, uh, which Paul did in regards to converts. Talking about fruits of his ministry, he's speaking about the converts that were made. Sometimes it speaks about our conduct. Sometimes it's used in reference to the contributions that were made, or even confession. But in this case, it has to do with our character. Walking in the Spirit changes who we are, and that changes what we do. Being is more important than doing. Sometimes we put all of the emphasis on doing. I'm a Christian. I ought to do this and I ought to do that. You know, the Pharisees did a lot of good things. Had a lot of good qualities about them. But none of them were acceptable to God because of what they were. Being what God wants us to be enables us to do what God commands us to do. And as we do that, the Spirit of God changes us. Look in 2 Timothy chapter number 3 and uh, no, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I hope you jot this down. And uh, in fact, I hope you spend some time in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, but I want you to notice the last verse of chapter 3, verse 18. But we all with open face, that is with, without any veil in between, with an open face beholding as in a glass, that is as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. You could say looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Notice, beholding, that's not a glance, that's beholding, keeping our focus on Him. Notice, 
When we do that, what happens? We are changed into the same image. What image is that? It's the image of Christ. Notice, from glory to glory, different degrees. From glory to glory. You could say, from glory to glory to glory to glory till we get to glory. You could say it that way. Notice, but here's the key I want you to notice. Even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now that... that teaches a very important truth because it tells us that He is the change agent in our life. Amen. Somebody says, you know, well, since I've, be- since I've been a Christian, I've made a lot of changes in my life. Well, you know, it probably won't last either. Yeah. It's the changes that the Holy Spirit makes in our life. Those are the things that really matter. Those are the things that continue on. Walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, we escape the works of the flesh. We experience the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I'll leave you with this thought. Try to imagine, if you can, what a different world this would be if we all express the fruit of the Spirit. Think about what a difference it would make in your home. What a difference it would make in the church. What a different world it would be if we all express the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness and goodness and meekness and temperance. I mean, when, when those qualities are all visible to others, when it is apparent that this is our lifestyle, the mind can't even imagine the difference that would make in people's lives. Mark it down, folks. The devil wants to destroy you. The world wants to defile you, and the flesh wants to defeat you. And your only safeguard is to walk in the Spirit, because when we do that, He does for us what the Word of God commands us to do. Now, we get down to this part about, you know, yeah, okay, I agree. I've got to agree what you said come right out of the Bible. I ought to walk in the Spirit. How do I do it? Well, you know, when Paul spoke about being filled with the Spirit, one of the, well, it seems like kind of a strange thing is, he didn't give any explanation. Really, he just said, walk in the Spirit, you know. I mean, to be filled with the Spirit. But he didn't go into a big, long, detailed list of things that that we need to do because he understood that they understood exactly what that implied. And I'm telling you, where there is a willingness for us to be filled with the Spirit, for us to walk in the Spirit, God has a way of directing our steps. But all of that being said, if we're going to walk in the Spirit, there certainly are some things that must happen. Number one, we have to confess every known sin. You know, I don't think there's anyone here that could say, you know, that some days I don't need to confess any of my sins. Because, you know, I mean, you think to yourself, well, boy, I made it through this day without any sin, really. Uh, What I ought to do is ask your wife if that's true, or ask your husband if that's true, and they'll rat you out, you know. They know you, you didn't make it through the day without sin. 
Look, if we're going to walk in the Spirit, there has to be a daily confession of our sins, but there's got to be more than that. There's got to be a consecration of ourself unto God. That is a setting aside of ourself for the service of the Lord. And we have to conform our ways unto the Word of God. One of the best ways to do that. You know, it's easy to get up here and say, well, if you're going to walk in the Spirit, you have to conform to the ways of God. Well, how do you do that? The best way I can tell you is to claim the promises of God. He's given us exceeding great and precious promises that by these... And he goes on and, and describes exactly what happens. And if you want to know how to live a victorious life, I mean, there's no, no doubt about it. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, he's given us exceeding great and precious promises that by these, notice, you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence... Add to your faith virtue and to virtue, knowledge and to knowledge, temperance and to temperance, patience and to patience, godliness and to godliness, brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, charity. Wait a minute, that kind of sounds like the fruit of the Spirit in a little different way, but some of the same qualities. Well, that's the whole point. I said at the very beginning, boy, when I got saved and I surrendered to preach, all of a sudden, I begin to live with Philippians 4.13 in my mind. 24 hours a day, it seemed like. I, I, I mean, I can remember times when I was so tempted. I'd get up from my desk. I worked for a civil engineering firm. And I'd get up from my desk, leave my drafting tools there on the table. I'd go in that little restroom and lock the door. And I'd just, I'd pray and I'd weep and over and over and over I'd repeat Philippians 4.13. God, you said it. I believe it and I'm claiming that. I, I, I mean, all the guys wanting to go out for drinks as soon as we get off work. And Lord, if you don't help me, I'm going to end up back in a bar room somewhere. And I was desperate, and I'm telling you, whenever we claim the promises of God, it, it, I, 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 I can't describe how it works, but when we claim His promises, all of a sudden God empires us, the Spirit enables us to do things that we couldn't ordinarily do. And I think, I think the, the real root of the issue is this. The Bible says, you know, without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's what the Bible says. Have you ever thought about how faith honors God? I mean, those of you that are parents, I'm sure you dads, some of you, You've taken your little child and set that little boy or girl up maybe on the countertop and said, come on, jump to daddy. Made you feel so good to think that little kid would trust you to, you know, to catch him. And let me tell you, there's something about faith that honors God. There's something about doubt and disbelief that dishonors God. It's kind of like calling God a liar. So let us claim all of those exceeding great and precious promises because as we do, that empowers us to do what ordinarily we couldn't ever do. And summed up, that would be to walk in the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, notice 
Going back to our text, if we do that, we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We'll be able to conquer temptation. We'll be able to, to live victoriously in a very dangerous world. Well, I pray tonight God will use these thoughts in some way to encourage you and to strengthen you and help you as you walk with the Lord. Let us bow in prayer. Father, how we thank You for Your great patience toward us. Lord, we think about uh, our desire to, to please You in everything. And uh, Lord, You know our heart. You know that's what we want to do. And Lord, You know about the effort that we put forth trying to do the right things. And uh, yet, Lord, You know about the many times and the many ways that we fail You. We fall flat on our face and fail to live up to Your expectations. We're so grateful that You are loving and patient. You're the God of second chances. And Lord, You don't throw the clay away, but rather you take, that, you take that filthy lump of clay and again you fashion it and make it a vessel that's fit for the Master's use. Thank You, Lord, for that work in our lives. We pray You'll do a special work in the life of all of Your children here tonight. And for the one that might be here that's a stranger to Your saving grace, I just pray tonight will be the night that they'll come to realize the dangerous situation they're in and that they might trust Christ as their Lord and their Savior. For we beg it in His dear name. Amen. While we 